Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, well, tonight, if you know me, you know that I consider Hype from 1996 to be the single greatest documentary ever made uh, for multiple reasons. And I feel so lucky and it's so honored to have the filmmaker on tonight. He is an Emmy Award winning member of the Academy, Grammy Award winning, it's Doug Prey. Doug, how are things? Well, they're really good right now because you just said hype is one of the best movies you've ever seen. I'm like, wow, that is really high praise. Thank you. I well, well, <laughs> you, it a while ago, but that's cool. Let's just get into it then because what you did with those performances in the film I feel like you let them breathe in ways that no other filmmaker has ever let musical performances breathe inside of a documentary. And the editing on that film, I think, is a masterclass in not only how to edit a documentary, but how to edit a feature film. How did you approach the film? How How early did you get into Seattle, and did you have... Did did you have that particular film in mind when you got there? Not at all. Um, the film began in 1992, which if you, if you study the exact history of the Seattle music scene being exploded and exploited, that's all, Nirvana was already a big deal. I mean, as I actually, the reason, the biggest challenge of the movie is contained in its title, Hype. Because it actually, we weren't there rolling cameras in what people would say was the kind of the golden era, the the pre-fame, you know, authentic, amazing days in the clubs where like bands were playing and they weren't quite famous yet, you know, when like Nirvana was just playing for the first time or Mud Honey was like by far the biggest band in the Seattle music scene. And you know what I mean? It's like those days was like the late eighties, like 85 to 90. And then things started taking off with sub pop and it, it really did. And, and, the, and it's a fun story. And it's also a story of kind of like, wow, everything changed and the whole world came to Seattle and they labeled it grunge. And it was, Seattle Rock City throughout the whole world. It was at that moment that I was a young filmmaker learning how to make films. I wasn't even studying documentary filmmaking, although I'd done some doc work. And my producer, Steve Helvey, was like, Doug, you have friends in the Seattle. <laughs> it was like as simple as this. You have friends in Seattle. You're a filmmaker. I'm a producer. Therefore, we got to make the movie about the Seattle music scene. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, Steve, we're a little late. Like you can't, you can't portray a scene if you're, you know, it's like, it's already on the cover of every magazine. Every single magazine said Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. Holy shit. Wow. This is insane. The whole world is going Seattle crazy. And I was like, we're just so late. You got to be there at the beginning, at the dawn of time, you know, like, so anyway, and I did have really good friends in Seattle. My college roommates were in this band called the Young Fresh Fellows, and I had made music videos for them, and then their friends, this band named Flop, which was fronted by Rusty Willoughby, who was in other really cool Seattle bands before that, like Pure Joy, and anyway, long story short, like, I did have a connection, and so he was right to kind of try to make that link, 
but it just felt so late. So by the time we were there and arriving with our cameras, and of course we were outsiders and it's a very, very insular, it had been a very insular scene, you know, just kind of like just you and your friends. Um, and even the, you know, it was just, it was, it was a very strange experience. It took us a couple of years of just filming and filming in clubs and filming bands and losing money, raising money, losing money. It was, it was quite desperate. It was my very first feature in, you know, like all the paying your dues that goes into that. But as we kept documenting it, it became not just the story of how the scene was born, which of course I got in the movie because I asked everybody, well, what did it used to be like? And we got old footage, like we, you know, we saw Nirvana's first, first performance and we saw all these bands from the early 80s, you know, I would find old video and stuff and put it in the movie, just like archival footage. But as a, as a very long-winded way of answering a question, the approach became, and you got to do this as a documentary filmmaker, you always got to say, what's our intention versus what do we got? What do we actually have in front of us that's actually exciting and interesting and worthy of telling? What what suddenly wasn't worthy of telling was just like, here's here's Seattle. Welcome to Seattle. By the way, have you heard of these bands? You know, that doc just wasn't gonna cut it. It just, first of all, everybody else was trying to make it, and you know, VH1 and every other broadcast entity on the planet was had already done the Seattle music scene thing. And what was more interesting was was the actual reaction of this really tight-knit, very self-deprecating, humor-filled community to what was going on and what was happening right when we arrived. So in some ways, it, I, I was so bummed out when we got there and I was like, shit, we're too late. And by the time we finished the movie, which wasn't a few years until a few years later, it premiered at Sundance in 1996, it all made sense. It was like, no, this is the perfect look back. We can look back at the whole damn thing, like how it really got going, what happened to it, what does media exposure do to a to an actual community of musicians, a, a great, great, very talented, amazing community, no doubt about it. But like what happens when the whole world goes there and a thousand other bands move in and say they want to be from Seattle and had never lived there. And when you know, fashion, you know, 7th Avenue comes in and makes it a fashion statement to wear like shitty flannel and on and on and on and all the things that the film documents, that became the story, or at least it became the second act of a three-act story where act one is what it was, act two is holy shit what's happening, and act three is kind of both, both the good and the bad. It's kind of like, wow, the heights we can possibly reach and also the tragedy of like, you know, Sometimes it's not so great when everything gets, you know, celebrity isn't that great and money isn't that great and fame isn't that great and having a million people invade your city isn't that great. And just kind of like, you know, it's almost, it's, you know, it's, there's a, definitely a tragedy in there too. So anyway, that's kind of, that, that became the approach. But again, really just trying to answer your question, the, the first name was going to be I was going to name the movie The Fabulous Sounds of the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> which is, I'm laughing because that was the title of the Young Fresh Fellows' first album, which came out in 1983. And the Young Fresh Fellows had nothing to do with grunge, but they, <laughs> but they were like my friend's band. And I was just like, that's so perfect. And it was tongue-in-cheek. Like the, the name of their title is completely tongue-in-cheek. And 
you know, but it was just like, I literally was like, I don't want to do the grunge movie. Let's just, let's just do it about all the fun stuff in Seattle. Cause everybody's just making this such a dark and angst ridden thing. And it's just kind of bullshit. It's not quite like that. So anyway, there you have it. Well, when you, when you first started filming, did you actively worry? And then you were trying to find these archival footage of let, let's say green river, mother love bone or the, or even the wipers. Were you, getting a little bit panicky when you first started doing it that you didn't see the vision of the film coming together the way that maybe as quickly as maybe you wanted to as soon as you started filming or when you when you wanted archival footage did you was that more of like an afterthought in the editing room and then you went to go try to find these things that was more in editing for example nirvana I mean, I, I, to this day, hate admitting it, but I never got the interview with Kurt Cobain. I never met him. It's kind of hard to believe. I made the movie about the Seattle music scene, but I never met Kurt. I just didn't. Because by the time we started filming, which was actually January of 1993, you know, that was the beginning of a really tough year for him and for the band. And, you know, and it just, and so it was hard to get to him. It was impossible. My frustration when we started filming and oddly, the thing that made the film, I think, reflect what you seem to like about it, which is all these live performances and the way they're filmed, which we can talk about separately, but is my frustration when we started filming was all the, this is back in the day of film and we needed to raise a lot of money. It's not like I wasn't just shooting like, you know, with my iPhone or like, you know, with a, a, a 4K camera. Like now you can just go buy one for, you know, whatever, a thousand bucks and pixels are free. Um, it's like, you know, we were filming, shooting film and we had to raise like $500,000 because we were shooting super 16 millimeter film and shooting bands and shooting in clubs. And that's a lot of film, like three cameras in a club. That's like a lot of film thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. But our investors who are just like, this, you know, great people, but like people who really wanted their money back because we had gone to them and said, hey, we're going to make the movie about this, the movie about the Seattle music scene. Won't you back it? I'm sure you'll get your money back. They just kept saying to us, where's Nirvana? Where's Alice in Chains? Where's Soundgarden? And where's Pearl Jam? And I mean it, that was it. That was the entire discussion. You can't just keep filming bands like Gas Suffer and Seven Year Bitch and Flop and all these bands who, by the way, are amazing, but like didn't have that international name for an investor to go like, well, we're not going to sell the movie if, if you don't get the big bands. We need the big bands. And so the whole, the very celebrity trap that, that's, that the community itself found itself in of suddenly being divided by us and them. Oh, there's the really famous, successful chart-topping bands versus the rest of us who just three weeks ago were playing in the same club with them. That division, which was enforced on them by the rest of the world and by publicity machines and by the press and by everything else, is exactly what I faced. It was the greatest irony. I was just like, oh, shit, I got to play the same game. Of course I have to have the big the big name bands in the film. And not that I didn't want to, they're, they're as much a part of it as anyone else. And they're great. It's like, it's not like I didn't want to film Pearl Jam, you know, or Soundgarden, are you kidding? Like, of course I wanted to at the time. 
So anyway, but it was a dilemma. And that lasted for a long, long time. It wasn't a year, a full year after filming lots of interviews and lots of bands that I finally got an interview with Eddie Vedder, finally got an interview with Soundgarden, finally kind of cracked into that sort of, uh, into that world a little bit with the help of Lisa Dutton and some, uh, another producer and, you know, just people who are trying to help me. It was just really interesting that I had to kind of play the same game. And part of it was that I was a first time filmmaker too. And I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So <laughs> can we just say that? <laughs> Is that why the uh, Soundgarden performance was actually filmed up here in, uh, in Calgary at the Max Bell Arena? Was it more of just you were trying to get them on tour and, and get this footage whenever you could get it? Well, that was after the, the ice had cracked and all of a sudden they were being cool and friendly and, you know, and I was I was able to work with Susan Till Silver, who's their manager, who's just great. And she she was like at that point, she, you know, she she and they and and sort of the powers that be, to use that expression, um, from the different companies and management companies up there, they respected what I was doing. And here's the irony, because it had taken me so goddamn long, because we had faithfully filmed so many of the bands who were seminal who were important, but weren't famous. It actually, in a really, it, it was a great lesson because it actually endeared me and our project, Steve and I in our, in our film, to the larger community. In other words, it's like, no, they're for real. They're actually filming some Velvet Sidewalk. They actually have like really beautiful footage of some Velvet Sidewalk playing in the Olympia, down in Olympia or, or whatever, you name it, like all these other bands, like just bands, and I don't mean to just lump them all together, but like, it's, it's like, they're not just chasing Alice in Chains. They actually really cared enough to film the Gits. They actually filmed, and not only that, we filmed them in Super 16. It was gorgeous footage. And we actually, this is why we lost money so fast on our budget, is we, we actually did it Digital sound was fairly new right then, but we actually had a little van and would park it in the alleys behind the clubs and feed in 24 tracks. You know, we, we were recording 24 track digital onto half inch tape, which was unthinkable, just unthinkable at the time for those performances. And to this day, it's just something I'm extremely proud of is that we put, we sort of put our money where our mouth was in that sense, like we really filmed punk rock garage type bands, but with really pristine sound and really nice film. And that is actually really interesting when you do that. Because usually if it's a garage band or just a punk band, it's like, well, whatever, it doesn't fucking matter. Just film it, just shoot it. You know, I've been in a million things where it's like, no, just get, you know, can we just get the board feed or whatever, you know, can we just get a mic on stage? Because whatever, it's 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 raunchy, it's raw, it's like, you know. And I was like the opposite. It's like, it's so amazing to mix powerful kind of like raw music when you have really good sources. And so I think you feel that in the movie, you know, and, I, and that's one, that's just one of, it's something I'm really proud of. Well, I'm, and I'm glad that you mentioned the rawness of it because I would say that another testament to the film is your actual interviews with these artists. <laughs> An interview in a documentary is a dime a dozen and they, they never have the authenticity and the honesty 
that you got out of a lot of these artists talking about this scene, talking about everything. You truly brought out this element that we we don't always get to see in documentaries. And I think that's what elevates this film to another level, especially for music fans. But documentary fans in general should should take note of what you did back in this documentary. I think one of the... I really appreciate you saying that. And I'm trying to think like, well, why, why, what was different or was there something different about what we did? And I even had help. It was my first doc. I'd never really done interviews before. Honestly, I'd done just a few. I had Jonathan Gold. This is a, this is a tangent, but it's just an interesting detail. I I was going to ask you about Jonathan Gold and, and how much input he really did have to the interview process. So please, well, just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a brief tangent, but Jonathan Gold, a lot of people don't know, and for those who don't know, Jonathan Gold is, is one of the world's greatest food writers, and he passed away tragically just a couple of years ago. Um, and, but he was like from the LA Times, and he actually won a, a Pulitzer Award for food writing, which is, if you just think about that alone, it's kind of like, wow. But he, he just, he really is big part of of the recent food movement and just a great guy. But back in the day, he was a rock writer. He wrote, he just wrote Veeks. He's just a great writer. You just read his writing and you just smile. Like every time I wrote a, read a review of his, of some band, and it was really into punk rock back in the eighties when I was, and like just, you know, just all, all music and everything else. And he just, he re, he reviewed a lot of that music and it was just, they were just great, 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 great reviews and then it was later i realized holy shit he's like a food writer his food writing is even better but long story short at the time when i was going back up not the first round um when we were losing money and not quite sure how we were going to make this movie but when i went back up a year later to kind of get more interviews this time with some of the bigger bands and bigger names and kind of rounding out everything um i brought jonathan with me because i needed help with the interviews i was like you know what i'm not I, I want to make myself the weakest link in this chain and I really want help. I, this has to work. I have no choice. Like this, I got to finish this movie. It's got to be killer. So he was very helpful. He, you know, he just, he was more of a rock critic, like knew more about the details. But for me, my approach, cause we kind of co-did those interviews. He would ask questions and I would ask some too. But um, so he helped me. But back to the main issue was like, I kind of knew from the start that this film wasn't for fans. Well, let me get that straight. What I mean was, if you were a fan of the music, if you knew Seattle, if you knew those bands, of course I wanted them to love the film. I wanted it to be respectful and funny and and just whatever. I hate the word authentic because it's used in every single commercial these days, but I wanted it to be authentic and just good and like kind of just something that they would look at and go, yeah, you know, that is kind of how it feels, or that is what it was, and not feel it was a phony outsider's interpretation. But because I was an outsider and not from Seattle, which has been true of almost every film I've ever made, I knew from the start that I wanted, like, I wanted an 80-year-old in Pennsylvania to watch this and get it. I wanted people in Britain to watch this and get it because it was like Liverpool or I wanted, you know, I wanted every 
I wanted all audiences. I wanted to make a bigger movie and a bigger statement about like, hey, this is what's happening in Seattle is really cool. And you'll get plenty of that music. And you, if you're a fan, you're going to love it. But this story is totally universal. It's what's happened to every single, every single precious art or music scene there's ever been on some level. And that's so it's not like I was that clairvoyant when I went up there. This was something that just develops when you're making a doc. And if you have an open mind, then you can kind of start seeing patterns and going, oh, we're telling a little bit of a bigger story here. So, but I think that allowed me to just get people talking honestly about their experience. It's just like, well, I don't want to hear like, oh yeah, that one song and that one album and the lyrics and this and that. Cause I was like, that's for a fan movie. That's an insider movie. I just care about like, how did this feel? What was this experience like? And is it bullshit? Is it frustrating? Is it funny? Is it, what is it? And getting that experience was my number one goal. And I think it made, it allowed people to just kind of speak their minds. And if they wanted to trash what was happening, they could just trash it. If they wanted to laugh at it, if they wanted to make fun of me, which, which like the Mud Honey guys are totally, just completely trashing me throughout the entire interview. I was just mortified that day. I, I think I told them that once and they were like, oh, really? Sorry. <laughs> we were just like drinking beer and having fun. And yeah, I interviewed them a couple of years ago and we got, we had a really good laugh about it. I was like, oh my God, I was just so self-serious at the time, you know, but, but, you know, I mean, yeah, people just, I just wanted them to be themselves, bottom line. Well, and then you had the shout uh, Blu-ray release come out. Did you go back and look at this film and maybe want to put more footage into it and, and maybe do a director's cut? And how much extra footage actually is there still of hype? Um, you know, not a well, the cut, the edit is pretty tight, meaning there wouldn't be loads of other things we could put in. The only sad part about any music movie is when you have to make those hideous, awful, agonizing decisions of like, oh shit, that band's not gonna make the cut. God damn it all, they were so cool, those guys, you know, that kind of thing. And that that stuff, just I just stay awake for weeks, you know, this agonizing over that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is no, I'm not even that into director's cuts. I'm kind of weird. I'm just like, no, if like, especially with an independent film, that should be your cut anyway. It is my cut. That is my cut. And it's like, so it wasn't like, oh, I want to do something that like the studio didn't allow. There was no such thing. That was, that was my movie. And I didn't want to revisit that so much. I did with the re-release in 2017, we did, um, I did go back up there and do a little mini kind of where are they now, kind of like 20 years, 20 years after um, video, like uh, just a, a short mini doc that's on the dvd that's kind of cool and it was fun to do it and i got to revisit kim thale and mark arm and you know and steve turner and just you know kurt and lulu from the fastbacks and you know it was it wasn't everybody it, it certainly was just a selective small group of people and jack and dino who's a major voice in the film like was really happy to meet him again and just talking about kind of like you know what what was that and how how was it 20 years later and that was really, that was the main thing that I added to it. There's a few other bonus features and things that we, that I brought in. Well, and then after that came Scratch. And were you a little hesitant going from a music doc right into another music doc? Uh, yes. And also because I was such an outsider to the world of hip hop. Um, I was very admittedly kind of a, a typical alt, you know, 
post-punk kind of typical, you know, whatever. Like my coming of age in the early eighties was all about punk rock. And um, I kind of missed the whole, the whole hip hop thing. I, I literally did during the eighties when so much was happening. Um, I mean, I was certainly aware of it, but not, it wasn't like I was buying records and, you know, going to shows and stuff. Um, and so I was approached by two producers who were like, Doug, man, we wanted, we love hype and we think you would do a nice job with this film about turntablism and about DJs. I, I man, I turned them down so fast. I was like, you guys, I can't, I just, I'm so not the guy. Like you really need somebody who like has an ear for hip hop and really, but they were persistent. And they gave me a bunch of CDs that I just kind of fell in love with. It was like Rob Swift. It was Mixmaster Mike. It was, it was these DJs, this kind of the second wave of all these turntablist DJs who, you know, like Mixmaster Mike was playing for the Beasties at that time. He was their DJ. And like, there was a lot happening that I was not so into, but I've always been really into music and I had an ear for music and I had an ear for the kind of the jazz experimental part of what these DJs were doing. And the fact that it wasn't so rap, it wasn't gangster rap. It wasn't all the cliche things that, that, that at the time people were, were feeling really played out. And I just was like, this is actually kind of cool. I kind of think this is cool. And then the producer did a really good thing and he introduced me to Mixmaster Mike. This is Ernest Meza introduced me to uh, Mixmaster Mike and Brad Blondheim is the other producer, by the way. And those two guys were like, Doug, they, they just never let me say no, which is by the way, is what Steve, he did the same thing on hype. I kept saying, no, like we're late. This is wrong. They're going to hate cameras. They hate fucking media. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's kind of funny. I have this really sick pattern when almost every film I've done, I said no to for like half a year. Um, but anyway, that's it. So that was the story in that. I, I literally fell in love with the music. So my entire entree into hip hop is probably the most backwards one of anyone you'd ever meet because it didn't come from pop culture at all. It came from literally through the turntables and the needles and the grooves and the beats and the rhythms. It just totally through the actual music of what these DJs were doing in 1999 and 2000. And it was just, it, it, I just had, I just got into it. And then I met the people. I thought they were fantastic. I was like, man, this, this is like, this isn't that different from the story that people had up in Seattle, like what it used to be. And and by the way, did you know that the DJ invented hip hop? Did you know that? Like a lot of people know that now, but they kind of didn't 20 years ago. You know, it wasn't quite the same understanding of like, wait a minute, this started in the South Bronx and here's how it started. And it was the DJ. And that, that to me was revelatory. I was just like, that's, because I didn't know about it, I figured the world didn't know about it, even though anyone in hip hop really did. But you know what I'm saying? So it was kind of my job. I suddenly had a, a problem to solve. It was just like Seattle, like solve a problem. Like that's what films are. You don't, you don't make films just because they're entertaining. You're trying to solve some problem. Like the problem is the people in Seattle feel like they're totally misrepresented and that isn't at all the truth of what they think they are. So my job is to try to tell the truth. Same thing with these DJs. They're like, man, people don't understand all what we're doing. They just don't get it. And they don't know the history of hip hop and they don't know that this other thing kind of took over this mass mediated, you know, 
gangster kind of bling bullshit thing took over in the late 90s, which I can also honor and praise. And, you know, we'll talk, we can talk about the Defiant Ones too and Dr. Dre and everything. But my point being, that was the attitude at the time with some of these guys. And I sort of, I sort of related to that going, yeah, this is cool. And they're not, nobody's, nobody understands what they're doing. So it's my job to try to understand it and put that in a movie and to hear it and to feel it and to feel the joy of that music. Cause it's just, it's such an explosion. It's so, it's so dynamic when a DJ is really rocking it, you know? Well, and you weren't really learning documentary when you were at UCLA. Do you think that why your films, why your documentary films have, have stood the test of time and really look like really any other documentarian's films is because you're coming in there with this feature film kind of a mindset, kind of in the way that, that, that Scorsese did when, when he made um, uh, documentary films? Um, again, I'm really flattered by the references, but honestly, I did look at it like this is my first film. I mean, the the problem with like sort of like the bigger film schools or the ones that have, have at least had reputations in the past is that they they make people super arrogant and they come out of there feeling like I'm I'm, I'm Francis Ford Coppola like I'm like I went to UCLA and so did he and I was just like yeah I'm the next Coppola and so did all of my other classmates like we all think that we all we're all like auteurs we're all gonna like do the next great American movie. And then when you 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 spend a year being broke and not doing that, you you quickly kind of learn a quick lesson that it's actually tougher. And I guess I forget where I'm going with that point, except to say that I had no idea that the documentary hype would become my first film. But once I started getting that energy and the momentum, there was sort of a no turning back moment of like, oh shit, I'm doing this movie holy shit, it's like the whole Seattle music scene is going to like look at it and care about it. And it's like, this is like, I can't let them down. I Like, I'm in it. Like, I got to finish. I, you know, you feel trapped by your own ambitions. And you're kind of like, at some point you realize, oh my God, this has to be not only, not only do I have to finish this, this has to be really good. But I still had that kind of arrogance of like, yeah, this is my first feature. This is going to be big and it has to be big and it's so I'm not trashing that arrogance it's maybe it's just a confidence too because you you do learn a lot in film school I'm a lot of people trash film school I'm a fan of it for certain people I think there's a lot of great directors who just didn't need it I can you know there's plenty who are just like nope they didn't need film school they learned it in many other ways and there's other people like me I'm like a soft-shelled turtle like I just need protection I needed film school I just I didn't know anything I really didn't know much at all. I never saw movies when I was little, all that. So anyway, uh, forgive the long-winded answer on that, but um, I feel like I kind of did want to treat these like features. Like they were features. They're cinematic experiences. The sound design, the sound mix, the pacing, the editing, the design of the editing, it all is extremely important. And back then, there weren't so many documentaries there, there, at all. Like it was just... It's almost like 10 to 1, how many more docs are being made today and consumed and enjoyed and appreciated. Back then, it was still kind of like, we called it the D word. It's like, oh, you're making a doc. Oh, that means A, it's boring. B, it won't make any money. C, you know, on and on. It's like, it's, it's like the kind of thing you'd always see on PBS, which is good or bad, but that's just, it was, that's what it was. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned people shitting on film school because I feel like, 
they do the exact same thing when it comes to the academy. And I'm glad that you're an academy member because I'm curious how how did you feel about the academy growing up? Do do you think that it is still an incredibly important thing? And where do you see it going from here? I don't have very strong feelings about the academy. It's it's an honor to be a member. It's really it's a little bit of you know bragging rights to say like yeah I'm in the academy or you know whatever. If like you're talking to somebody and it just sounds it it sounds official like you're oh you're really a filmmaker and but there's there's also a lot of pretension that comes with it and what I like most about the academy is the programs they have like educational programs or the fact that they finally have are building this massive museum of motion pictures which is just I'm so excited for that. I know. The reason there hasn't been one for, like ever in LA. Like, can you believe that this city, I, I live in LA for those who are wondering, but it's like, I can't believe that this city never had a film museum. It's like kind of amazing, but they finally do. And it's going to open, well, I guess right after COVID or whatever, like th- this year. And it's, that to me is what the Academy should do. That to me is awesome. I'm more cynical about the awards process, not because I think films shouldn't be, awarded i think i think that is a great thing to like honor your peers and like say hey wow that's a great doc like i'm i want to vote for that and it's really educational to look at all the different movies and vote for them and stuff but you know that's like an annual kind of ritual but um, my only cynicism with that is just that but you know to to kind of get noticed you have to do just such a massive publicity campaign and that's that's frustrating to me because as kind of a one-time you know, well, still to this day, like, you know, it's like an independent filmmaker kind of attitude. It's like, well, you don't have that money. You can't have fancy screenings in fancy people's homes, you know, to to win votes. And that side of it, the publicity side of the Academy, the Academy Awards I'm talking about, not the Academy. The Academy's fine, but I'm talking about the awards thing. I'm I'm just more kind of like, okay, you know, the reason that documentary got a lot of acclaim is because it has every single person behind it. And there's other smaller films that just don't get noticed. So it, you know, that's, that, that would be my only, my only real kind of gripe about the whole thing is it's just, I think the awards are just way overblown. I'm glad you mentioned um, camps and things like that because wild mind film camp, you, you co-founded was that kind of, out of the spirit of, of what the Academy was doing for young filmmakers? Or was this always in your mind of something that you wanted to do? You know, the Wild Mind Film Camp was was a grand experiment, and I just loved it. And it only ran three years. And then kind of realized, like, you know what? It, we're just basically, we're not, it's, it, it wasn't a financial, um, you know, even, even the simplest camp with only 12, quote-unquote, campers, filmmakers, basically, is still something you need to run. And like, I just got super busy and I was kind of like, man, this is tough. My good, my amazing friend, Pete Vogt, who lives in Seattle, who was, who was the initial investor in Hype and has been involved with um, other projects with me over the years. He, he and I had this idea to just do a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaking camp up in the mountains, like an intensive workshop, just one of those, you know, they have different workshops like that in different places, like writers workshops and like a retreat where you just go off into the woods, but you actually just really get down to what is documentary filmmaking and how do you do a great interview and how do you, not just how to edit, but what's the essence of editing. So it wasn't about 
yes, we'll show you skills, we'll teach you skills and stuff, but it's really about, it's, it's, it's what do you, what's the goal? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to say? And how do you say it? And man, I loved it. It was, it was really cool. We did it for three years. It was way, literally way out in the woods. It was in the middle of central Washington, way up in the mountains in a town called Twisp. And it was on pizza. He has this little chili ranch. He grows chilies and has this little ranch. I mean, it was kind of idyllic. It was pretty, pretty awesome. But um, anyway, yeah, it, it kind of had nothing to do with the academy, but in terms of education, sure. And whenever I, I, you know, there's a lot of cool programs for for younger filmmakers, for filmmakers of all ages who want to just kind of get their hands on the equipment and try stuff. And it was very much in that spirit. And we they would make films. In the, it was only, I think it lasted, it was 12 filmmakers, 12 days, basically. And they would make a short film, no matter how good or bad they were, skills wise they would make a film and and just we would have intensive sessions every single day it was cool you mentioned the defiant ones earlier i'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times but why did you not end up directing that (laughs) because it was never mine to direct alan hughes is is a little secret for the world alan Hughes is one of the greatest documentary filmmakers today he really is even though he's in he's you know, known for his big Hollywood features. And of course, his breakout film with his brother, Albert, and the, you know, they were known as the Hughes brothers for most of their career and still are in some, in some regards. Um, although they they work more separately now, but anyway, their first film menace to society, um, which went to Cannes when they were at the precious age of 19. Um, Alan's great. And I had worked with Alan years ago. I had actually edited a movie for him called American Pimp, which certainly by today's standards would be wildly controversial for really good reasons. But it was kind of a flat out honest portrayal of real life pimps. And I think the controversy, and it was just the fact that it kind of, you know, it, it let them say whatever the hell they wanted. It was just kind of like, it was very it was very honest but that that means you get a lot of you know you get a lot of stuff that is just very hard for a lot of people to hear because it's really misogynist or it's really this or it's that or it's just very difficult film but nevertheless it's a powerful doc i went to sundance in 1999 and i edited that for alan and albert hughes and alan and i had always stayed in touch a bit after that and had talked about working together and he was already making the Defiant Ones as a director. He just didn't have an editor yet, but he wanted a partner. So he asked me back in, this was in 2014, if I would join him as an executive producer, meaning be his partner on this series. And and then the catch was, and would I edit it? And I'm not really an editor for other directors. I've, I've edited a lot of what I direct, but I've never kind of been... I've, I've actually, except for Alan Hughes, I've never edited for anybody else. That's what's kind of funny. I've never done anyone else's features. Um, so anyway, that's that's the answer to your question, and that's how we're going. Does he allow you to really express yourself as an artist in the editing oh. room, or is he, or, or or is it really a collaborative effort between both? Well, of- it was both. And there's another guy I got to mention, Lasse Jarvie was a student of mine. I do teach documentary filmmaking from time to time, and I've done a lot of it at this place called Colorado College, where I attended um, when I, that's where I went to my college, undergrad. And I go back there from time to time and teach doc 
filmmaking because they have this thing called the block plan where you take one class at a time. So it'll, it's really friendly to visiting professors because you just go there for one month and teach an entire semester. It's actually just, it's exactly like Wild Mind Film Camp. It's an intensive 17 day course, you know, three, three and a half weeks. But they, they're not taking other classes. They're only taking your class. So you can send it, you can have like, you can say, okay, for the next two days, we're just going to edit. Or like, hey, I want you to make a film tonight and we're all going to show them tomorrow morning at 10. And you know they don't, they have no competing classes. So it's pretty conducive to filmmaking that college. But anyway, the reason I brought that up is one of my students, way back when I was making Scratch in 2000, the year 2000, I taught there. And this student named Lasse Jarvie, he just caught my eye and his editing was so rhythmic and so out of the gate, just kind of, wow, that's a cool idea. What did you just do? Like, wait, what did you do? That is a cool edit, you know, that kind of thing. And um, and I always told Lasse, I was like, hey, if you ever move out to LA, just like call me up because, you know, every so often you run into a student, you're like, man, I'd love, I'd love to work with that kid. This guy's great. And he's one of them. And so he, he came out to LA a couple of years later. I immediately hired him to edit my film about graffiti, which is called Infamy, which is all about graffiti writers. Um, and anyway, and he did just a great job with that film. And then he went on and he edited Surfwise, um, which is my film, my surfing film about the, the Paskowitz family. But anyway, um, I brought Lasse onto the Defiant Ones and he and I, it was like a triangle. Alan was the director. Alan absolutely let me do what I do I think best. He let me shine as an editor. He let Lasse shine as an editor. And then Lasse and I had this super dynamic ability to kind of trade scenes and sections with each other where sometimes I'd do an edit and go like, Doug, man, give, just give it to me. Give me that whole scene. I'm going to recut it. Of course, it's like your ego is like, no, <laughs> fuck you. I, I just finished it. I love it. It's really good, Lasse. No. And like he would take it and then just like totally flip it on its head like literally upside down. And I'd go, oh my God. And half the time I'd go, no, you, you totally screwed it up. I'm taking it back. Or Ellen would look at it and go, no, no, why'd you do that? Doug's cut was perfect. But half the time, the other half, just brilliant. Like literally, he's like Picasso. It's just brilliant. You're like, oh my God, my brain can't possibly go down those corridors that your editorial brain is going down. I'm a much more traditional, like, like just... I love blunt editing, but very straightforward. Like, like everything I'm doing is like, hold the hand of the audience, tell them exactly what's going on. I'm not into like freaking people out with like, what the fuck is this? Like, I love surprises and I love humor and I love blunt raw edits that just kind of, they might, they might shock you, but, but I mean, but the storytelling has to be just totally buttoned down. Like, you know exactly what this dialogue is saying. You know exactly what the scene is communicating and it leads to the next scene. And then that scene leads to the next scene. Lasse is just like, a, like an abstract painter. Like he'll just take, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? He'll take like a big blob of mud and put it right on top of an enchilada. And you're like, that's so wrong and such a bad, you're just not supposed to do that. And it's fucking brilliant. That's just really cool looking, you know, like whatever. So it's a strange metaphor. Alan as a director, what I love about Alan is that he doesn't sit there and go like, oh, redo that edit, like move that back a few frames. Or like, can you, he just, he, he directs. The reason he's a great director is he has, 
that sense. I think I think really great directors have a sense. It's a feeling. It's like I don't know what's wrong with this, but I have a feeling that it's wrong, and I want to feel this other thing. And he communicates. It, it's very sensory, and it's very about feeling, and it's about emotion, and it's about all the right things that film needs to be about. It's sometimes intellectual, or sometimes he's like, "Oh, I don't like that shot." Of course, he has comments, and like, "I don't, I don't like that song," or like, "I don't like that," or that interview. Like, that guy looks weird there. Let's find a different part. Of course, he has directorial notes, but but they're not. But that's just not like that. He he really lets you shine, and he lets you fail. He lets you completely do something, and then fail in a good way, and then kind of like and pick pick up the pieces and kind of try again. And with the defiant, the story of the defiant ones is that triangle, and I don't know if it'll ever be repeated again. But it was incredibly dynamic. It was incredibly challenging. It was one of the most intensive creative things I've ever been involved with, and I wasn't even directing it at all. I was just not just the editor, but you know, I mean, I was his partner too, and it was it was really it was a, it was a great experience, and it was an intense experience. Because Alan is, he set a really high bar. And if something wasn't working, it wasn't working. It didn't matter if you'd done it 25 times. It's like, God damn, we're not there yet. Let's just, let's go back one more time. Or let's put it aside for two months and we'll come back to it. And then two months later, he had this like, oh, wow. I just had this new idea. Because that other scene we cut, you know. So that's how editing needs to be. It needs time. It needs arguments. It needs index cards all over the walls and then reshuffling them and reshaping them. It's like, it's not writing, it's rewriting. It's not about editing, it's re-editing. That's like, that's just the golden rule. So anyway, it was, it was intense and that's kind of how it was, but I have nothing but respect for Alan. What, what would you say your favorite part of the filmmaking process is and where you essentially get to allow your artistic side to really shine the most? I do think it's in editing more. I mean, I do, I love shooting. You know, I really do like shooting. But to me, that's kind of like going sh- shopping. It's like, I'm going to make this huge meal, but I got to keep going back to the grocery store and getting all these elements and throwing them into the, the grocery cart. And then when I get home, you know, or with the other editor, it's like, okay, that's where that's where the, the sort of the magic happens. That's not to say that I don't feel that when I'm filming. Sometimes you're filming like, oh my God, this quote, I can't believe that guy just said that. I love that. And that's a, that's a, that's a real high. But usually it's frustrating. I'm usually frustrated when I'm filming docs. I'm like, no, damn it, he didn't say that. He didn't say what I needed. Or I'll like be driving away from something and I'll just go, oh no, I forgot to get that shot. Why didn't I get that shot? I can't believe I didn't get the shot of the painting on the fridge or like, you know, like just stuff like details or it could be some mega thing. Like, wow, I thought that was going to be a good interview. And you know what? That sucked. It's just that that's what's beautiful about docs is their real life and light. And it happens to you and you can't just do take two. What I love about editing is then you get all the control back. You kind of go, okay, I have this music. I have this shot. I have this quote. I have this shot of the person saying this quote. I have this part where it's fitting into the, the larger scene. I have the scene that came before it, and that's affecting the audience's mood coming into this one. I'm always thinking about the audience on a very high level, always going, what are they experiencing? Oh, right now they need a, they need a laugh. They need a cry, or they need a, 
it's just too intense. They need to breathe. This is crazy. We got to slow it down now. And but that's all manipulated. And and I say that word with the, in the best sense of it. And it's just highly creative. And I just love it. With so much power, you know, I can I can take any interview quote. And it's still the real thing. It's not manipulating like I'm making this person lie. I don't, I don't do that. You have to have integrity. But it's like you, you can take any part of an interview and you can kind of go there. Like, oh, this guy is, or this woman, whoever is talking about their divorce or the loss of a parent or, or the loss of a pet or whatever. And it, but they didn't say it with quite the sadness that I know they feel. And that's where I can come in as an editor and say, well, this music isn't really going to add a lot. And if I take their words and space them out a little bit, it makes it just come across a little more thoughtfully. It's still their words. It's still honest. I'm not taking, you know, I'm not, I'm, I, I never do stuff that people write me back and say, you took me out of context. I, I didn't feel that way. It's always leaning into what I think they, they are. So you have to have a pretty good sense of what you think your character is. And, um, but that to me is just highly creative when you're, you know, it's two in the morning, you've been editing all night and you have this aha moment of like, oh, wow, I just realized that this goes with this other thing. And it never did before. It's, it's, it's by association is the most powerful thing in editing. By association is putting together two things that formerly were never put together. That's what Lasse does at editor all the time. And that's what all great scientific discovery is. You know, most crazy groundbreaking scientific discovery is an accident. It's like the guy going, wait, what's all that mold on that orange? And that becomes penicillin or what, you know, however, however that went down, you know, or just, it's, it's just, it's things that aren't supposed to go together. And that's called by association. And that's, when you come upon something like that, that you like, oh, I never thought to put this quote here and I just tried it and it's brilliant or it feels brilliant or maybe the audience might think it is, then you just won. And half the time it doesn't. Half the time it doesn't work. Most of the time it doesn't work and you're frustrated and you hate it and editing is a pain in the ass. But when it's good, it's good. That's my favorite part. Last year we got to see you work for uh, the newish kind of a company, Apple Plus, with... Uh their documentary series home. How is that working for such a new, a, a new streaming company? Do you like the direction that they're heading? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, they're new. And so they're kind of like getting their, you know, they're like a toddler. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're learning the world and they're learning exactly what is their voice. And they're, they're growing up. It's not an insult to call them a toddler. I just meant they're like you know, a couple of years old. That's it. So, they're trying to figure it out along with a lot of other companies are in the same boat of like, well, who are we? What, what is this company? And now there's like Paramount plus, and now there's like, you know, Disney and all, all these streaming companies. Apple was great to work with because Apple has always been kind of a classy company just for what it's worth. They just are. And I think they're taking that approach to the television that they're producing. I think they, they care about the message. I think they care about not wanting to be lowest common denominator. I think they care about the future of the world. And therefore there's almost an, an aesthetic or an ethic going into kind of an ethics going into what stories they're telling. Um, this isn't an ad for Apple, by the way. And I mean, the, so I, I was an executive producer on this 
series called Home, which was, you know, quite different from stuff I'd worked on before. And frankly, I'd really never worked on television at all until I did The Defiant Ones, which was just a four-part limited series. So this was the first time I was involved in something that had nine episodes. And I actually started, I directed two of them and then became an executive producer overseeing post on everything. So I wasn't physically editing. I was overseeing edits and looking at the storytelling and just, just trying to help like any EP does in a series in any way that I could. And it was, um, it was kind of both a frustrating experience because you realize with television, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. There's, there's executives and they have notes and there's other EPs and they have different notes and there's, you know, and you realize that like the directors kind of come and go on the episodes, which to me is unfathomable. It's like, how can you have a director that doesn't just live with it for the whole time? And like people have done television for their whole career, look at me like, what's your problem? No, that's how TV is. It's like, it's the, it's a producer's medium. medium. It's a producer's medium. So it was both frustrating and fascinating. And I learned a lot. There was a big learning curve for me. But I also really liked the series. It was kind of simple and it had a good message and the homes were cool and the characters were cool. And I, I liked it. It was, it was really fun to see it be brought out to the world last April and just kind of come out and go like, wow, that's interesting. I just worked on a series. And it, so uh, it was kind of new for me. And, uh, you know, and as you were saying, like it was kind of new for Apple too. I think, I think what's hard for all these streamers is they just, they just need to find their signature and then just run with it. And I think Apple has a bit of a signature, but I think, I think that's very challenging, you know, like. Speaking of having a message, after you did the advoc advocacy campaign for HIV AIDS awareness, did you feel like you had this little bit of a political spark and you were maybe going to go down some more political documentary routes or was that kind of capped off? It's there? kind of interesting. I've, it should be known that one of the reasons documentaries don't typically make money. That's just a fact there, things are changing nowadays. I think because there's some very big sales of documentaries and things like that, you know, but typically certainly when I, you know, in the, first decade or so of my career, it was never the case that you would earn a living. And so long story short, I, I turned to doing nonfiction style commercials, which might sound awful, but they actually were, were pretty great experiences. And a lot of, you know, I get to travel to cool places and interview people and that would turn into a 30 second spot or sometimes like a, a little five minute branded content short film or something, you know, some of the jobs were just incredibly cool. And in that world, there also was this other thing called the advocacy campaign, which, of course, we, you know, we see on television, different things. And I really took to that as, as something that I enjoy doing, because not only are, are you, of course, you're getting paid as a job, but it's like a, a worthy cause. And, and I just, some of the work I'm most proud of, and I didn't do tons of it, but was things along those lines. Like there was a really powerful uh, gay rights in the workplace campaign that I worked on, you know, way back when, like back in 2005 or six. Um, and some of that stuff is only coming to fruition today legally in terms of laws and things and the workplace opening up and, you know, and then the HIV awareness campaign that you referenced, which, um, that was an amazing experience. So I, you know, went down to El Salvador where there was intensive issues with HIV at the time. There may still be today. I'm not quite up on that 
fact whether that's true or not, but at the time it was a really big deal and, and we filmed and it, it just, and came back and made with, with his ad agency, DDB Seattle made a really, really powerful campaign that won a ton of awards. And it just, it, it's a very satisfying kind of work to do if you're not doing that kind of work in your daily life. And that leads to the second thing of that statement, which is my films have never really been political. I've never been the type to do what I'd call an advocacy documentary or a hard hitting take no prisoners or definitely take sides thing. I've never been able to put my head into the Michael Moore world or I really admire filmmakers who do hard hitting political docs and there's more and more of them, especially in the last few years. Um, there's a lot of them and I look at them and I go, wow, they really pulled off the gloves. Like, you know, that's this is a great, powerful film. Or maybe not. Sometimes I'm super critical of them that they're just kind of not working or they never show the other side or you just, it's just so one-sided. You're like, okay, this is just a polemic. Like, I really didn't need to see this. I could have just read this in the newspaper as an opinion piece. But that said, it's, ne it's never been my style. I have too much empathy for the other side. I always see the other side. I constantly am, I'm overly able to sit in everyone's shoes which I think made me a good documentarian or maybe, I don't know if I'm good or not, but it made me get into it and and thrive at least in that world because I'm always able to sit there and go like, oh, and do interviews with people and kind of kind of rather quickly get into what I think they're trying to say or feel. I'm, I'm a chameleon in that way. And I could never do a political thing because I just can't, I just, I sit there and listen to people and even if I totally disagree with them politically, I kind of start seeing where they're coming from. I start going like, oh, yeah, I get, oh, I never thought about that way. You know, I'm just like, I'm, I'm a little too open-minded, which is. <laughs> would you say that a cinema verite film like Robert Drew's primary would, would maybe if you did get into a political kind of a thing, it would look more yes, something like totally. that? Like, like, yeah, like, you know, just like being with a character who's in a very political situation. I'm not afraid of making stories that are political. It's it's more, I just don't think I'll ever do that. A, very, a highly polemic political movie. I just can't quite see that. It's sort of like, and I'm probably not that good at it. I, I probably would just be in agony in the editing room going like, man, I don't even agree with my lead character anymore. You know, I'd be, honestly, like I would just start kind of be, seeing... But yeah, you make a good point. I, I, but there's the other kind, which is like you're you're portraying, you're faithfully portraying a political situation. That to me is really cool. And yeah, I could definitely do that. And there could be an argument that maybe my films in some odd way are a little bit political in the sense that they are, well, not politics political, but they are socially, that they, they, they may have something that's socially redeeming because I'm often telling the story of underdogs, you know, of, of people who weren't noticed, who aren't celebrities, who, you know, I mean, all my first films were about people who looked at the world in really, really different unconventional ways and were fundamentally misunderstood by society. Like all of them, all my first five films, every single one of them is kind of about that. And so that's, you could argue that that's almost a sociology, a sociological approach, or maybe that, maybe there's some social statement there, but I'm not trying to, you know, it's whatever. People should take what they want and think what they want. I'm not 
I don't set out trying to say, oh my God, I'm going to save these people. It's not that kind of a mission. <laughs> it's, it's more, I want to tell their story and tell it right. I want to be honest. Well, finally, can we expect you to be incredibly busy this next year with, with new projects? I have been super busy and, um, and it's, it's such a terrible thing to have to say. There's a project that I, you know, I've been really, really lost in and frankly struggling with because it's a very difficult edit. I'm directing and editing and it's just a project that I, it's absolutely unannounced and I really, it's been just a, not secret. It's not kind of, it's not like some crazy, dark, weird secret that it's more, but I, I just can't talk about it. Um, you know, hopefully it'll be announced in the next couple of months. Um, and when it is, it'll all make sense. But, um, but I, yeah, I've been busy with that. Also been, um, I also was involved with a series that is not out yet either and hasn't really officially been announced, but I can at least mention it, that is based on a book that Dave Grohl's mother wrote called From Cradle to Stage. And it's actually about the relationship between famous performers and their mothers, which might sound, you know, like, you know, you can think what you want about it, but it's actually pretty cool because who knows more about an artist's true life than their mom, you know, and, and Dave's mom wrote this book. And so Dave and his mom are in it and there's, there's other artists. Um, I'll just keep it at that, but like each episode is about a different artist, but it's, it's been kind of cool. It was actually, you know, it's Dave is the director. I'm not the director. Again, I'm an EP just kind of like consulting and advising like executive producers often do and working with the edits and just overseeing along with John Ramsey, who's a, an executive producer too. And that, so that's been fun. It got sort of put on the shelf like so many things during COVID, but it's um, it's coming back and will be finished up this spring. So I'm excited about that. And then another project, which is an incredibly um, uh, kind of, I'll call it a labor of love, but it's pretty fascinating. And I think you in particular would really like it when it's done. But I had a professor at UCLA Film School named Howard Suber. And Howard taught there for 50 years, which if you really think about it, that's a lot longer than most teachers teach. <laughs> Long after he'd retired, he was a professor emer emeritus. Uh, and, and he was kind of like, I, I think he's brilliant. And he inspired lots and lots of film students, um, everybody from Alexander Payne to, I'm sure, I would assume Francis Ford Coppola took his class back in the 60s. But he just, he kind of taught me everything I know about structure and, and storytelling and why he wrote a book called The Power of Film. And it's not about, it's not about box office. It's, it's about what really made the greatest films of all time, the greatest films of all time. Why are we still talking about The Godfather? What is it in The Godfather? It's not just the script. It's not just this. It's not this, that. What really is going on? And he's kind of like the kind of professor who just, gets into the, the structural pr principles or he talks about heroes and villains. He talks about just, just so many deep things, kind of in a Joseph Campbell type hero's journey way. And he does talk about that as well. And it's just kind of mind blowing. And he blew my mind when I went to film school. I, to this day, everything I do is kind of informed by him. Um, so we made this series. Laura Gabbard is a is a fellow director. She also went to UCLA. She does. She's a documentary filmmaker. In fact, ironically, she made the Jonathan Gold film. Just to bring go full circle there, she made the 
the film about Jonathan Gold, the documentary. But she and I, um, with the help of a few other of Howard's former students, we made this series called The Power of Film. And we've just, we've just been doing it on the side, on our own, kind of like, you know, paying for it out of our own pockets and Howard too. And just like between Howard, Laura and I, we've just basically been making this series. And each episode is on a different part part of sort of the, the wonders of filmmaking and what makes this, what makes great films great. I mean, he talks about every movie that's great. He doesn't talk about any movies that aren't like considered either popular or memorable. They have to be, they have to have stood the test of time. I mean, truly like, you know, anything Kubrick did or like, you know, Scorsese or like, like big movies that really stood the test of time. And it's just been really fascinating. It's just been, so we filmed him giving all these, he basically took 50 years and packed it into six days of filming. We did, we used it in Terratron and just kind of got all that. And then we're just cutting in like a million clips from a million movies. And so he's like talking and you'll see the scenes and it's just, it's, it's strangely very dynamic to go back and forth from this 84 year old professor Who's, who's very astute and very with it and great. And these clips, it's just kind of, it's dynamic. But it's taken us forever to finish. We've been working on it literally for like four years. <laughs> so, so that's another thing I've been spending a lot of time on. I'm very excited to hear that. <laughs> I'm 100% in, into that. I can't wait to share it with you because so. you're so into movies. And like, I just know that your sensibility, like, I think you dig it. It's it's really, and it's not like a master class at all. I can't explain it. It's just more, it's like you're in his brain and you're watching these movies. It's, it's pretty cool. His name is Howard Suber, by the way, Professor Howard Suber. I'm, I'm going to have to go pick up that book also. Yeah, the book is funny because he, he's like the god of film structure. He really is the god of film structure and he couldn't structure his book. <laughs> couldn't at all his book that he wrote he ended up getting so frustrated he did it in alphabetical order he just took all the topics that he talks about like literally like like deception is a concept that he talks about like that's a really important part of every great story or um i don't know like i could you know these all these different what are some of the other principles like the idea of being trapped like every great movie is really about people being trapped. Like that's an example of the kind of thing he talks about, but he really gets into it, breaks it down and you realize, oh shit, he's totally right. Every single movie is actually the person is trapped no matter by what, but he gets into it in a much deeper way than I just did. And so like that would be under T in his book. Under <laughs> so it's like, you just look out, there's the T's, there's trapped. And so you get to read what he's thinking about these things. And if you read the whole book, it makes sense. But it's it's almost more of like a reference book. Like, what would Howard say? Well, let me look this up. What does he say about villains? What does he say about, you know, this or that? And, you know, it's it's just, it's, uh, it, I, I had a laugh. And he, I can only give him shit about that because he himself does. He, he's always like, that was his big joke when he put the book out. He's like, figures. I couldn't figure out the structure. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for coming on here. It truly means a lot. And I don't know, <laughs> anybody that knows me l truly knows how much you as a filmmaker has meant to me, my own filmmaking. So it was great to talk to you today. I really appreciate Super it. Super honored, Robert, and love what you're doing. And I just, yeah, it means the world to me. And I'm, I'm very flattered by your compliments. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. It was actually fun to talk about films that I made quite a while ago. It really, it was fun to get my head back into that. 
Thank you for listening. Look, you already know what I'm going to say. If you haven't seen Hype, fucking go watch Hype. If you've seen Hype, go watch it again. It's such an important film. All of Doug Prey's films are important films. You can check him out at DougPrey.com. It'll be in the show notes. And this concludes our broadcast day.